0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Doctor Nick.
2: Hello, everybody. It's Dr Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7 on this absolutely stunningly beautiful autumnal Melbourne morning. And joining me in the studio this morning are two of our regular panellists, academic sociologist, master of the radio (laughs) knobs and buttons, panel beater. (laughs) How do you you describe yourself?
0: Oh, I've given up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just uh, maybe just... Anything above being called a bad smell is, is good, <laughs> good for me.
2: <laughs> well, I not you got slightly above that. <laughs> Thanks for coming and joining us this morning. And junior doctor, but actually not quite, no longer quite so junior, we have misdiagnosis.
3: Good morning, doctor. I would still consider myself to be very junior.
2: Two years experience, doesn't that make you, you know, you're up there, you know what you're doing now.
3: I, I know just enough to be even more
2: afraid. <laughs> and don't you get uh, a, a, bonus,
0: a bonus for having done it during COVID? Isn't one year worth two years?
3: Yeah, I, probably. It's probably, you know, seven dog years <laughs> of medical practice or something
2: like that. I think any year spent in full PPE working, that counts as double at least. Anyway, lovely to have you on in the studio here this morning. Um, we've got an incredible show for you this morning. We've got two absolutely fabulous guests. Uh, coming up soon, we'll be talking to the one and only Fiona Patton. Now, Fiona, as you all well know, is a politician, leader of the Reason Party, and she has an incredible track record. Record of supporting socially progressive legislation, things such as the safe injecting room, voluntary assisted dying. And now the decriminalisation of illicit drugs. Really important topic. We'll be talking to her soon. I can't wait for that. Uh, Miss Diagnosis, you've got someone special lined up for the second part of the show, haven't you?
3: I do. I have Sam from um, St John's Ambulance who's coming in to talk to us about uh, defibrillators in your street.
2: And defibrillators in the general sense is something we're going to talk about because um, they, they weren't around. I mean, they, we take them for granted now, but uh, previously they, they were just a sort of occasional luxury item, weren't
3: they? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So, they, I mean, they used to float around in a couple of different ambulances and things, but not every ambulance. And um, as with sort of all technology, they started out being these enormous machines Mm. that we've somehow managed to get into almost a pocket-sized format now so you didn't used to physically be able to fit them in an ambulance when they were first invented whereas now um thankfully we've got them in pretty much every ambulance
2: so for those who are interested in defibrillators hang around and have a listen because we'll be talking about later in the show Uh, before that though we have our new segment It's the triple-R uh, Labrador Retriever. <laughs> it, it sounds like my backyard, actually. It sounds like Samuel Rosie, my dogs. Yes, it's the dog part shout-out. <laughs> Here at R, we love all animals, cats, dogs, aardvarks and axolotls. But you don't see too many of those in the park, so dogs it is. And today's dog park shout out, unless you've got one, have you, Miss Dugna? So you've been too busy to go to the dog park, haven't you?
3: Yeah, and and don't currently have a dog of my own.
2: Well, in that case, the dog park shout out today goes to Matt from Richmond and the wonderful Kelpie, the frisbee-catching Luna. There is nothing better, I reckon, than watching a dog run in the park and catch a frisbee. They think that's, I think oh yeah yeah it 's poetry motion it is so and what I think is fascinating is that dogs like humans, they learn, um, and this <laughs> this is incredible. it sort of seems to measure the wind direction and the angle of flight and leap at just the right time. Uh. Glorious. Yeah. So anyway, Matt and Luna, uh this is your dog park shout out from 102.7. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. I do love a good dog. So, let's go on and have some news.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
2: Now, panel beater. um you as always, you've got your finger on the pal's eye on the news, You're reading the things at two o'clock in the morning when most of us should be fast asleep because you just can't keep yourself away from this. What have you got for us this morning? Well, it's, it's a professional obligation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the grattan institute who um yeah
0: i do pay a lot of attention to the work of the grattan institute i think they're a fabulous uh, unit and stephen duckett over there um who deals with the health portfolio um has been on radiotherapy a couple of times with us was on for the um, budget review um last year and we're mm-hmm. hoping to get him again um next month because uh, the budget's coming down early this year um Yeah, but they've just released a report taking a look at an issue that perhaps many of us have suspected is the case and have been worried about, but um, as we know, we need the data and we need the information that confirms it if if policies and the like are to be changed. In this case, they were looking at... Um, The impact of some um, unregulated um, costing or pricing of some medical services, especially specialist services, and the uptake when the gap is uh, significant for people of low socioeconomic means. Uh And they found um, that about uh, half a million Australians um, are not taking up the referral that they've been given because they can't afford the gap.
2: Now that's a huge, huge number—half a million. Half a million for
0: cost reasons. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we're we're talking about um, referrals to uh, things like dermatologists, urologists, obstetricians, ophthalmologists, where um, it's not at all unusual. It turns out that the that the gap is more than double the Medicare uh, base rate scheduled I, fee.
2: And do you actually have a sort of dollar figure of roughly what we're talking—that people are, are going to be out of pocket that they're bulking at?
0: Other, other than it's, um, I've just got the headline figure, which is that it's more than double of the ninety, so some, 90. something okay. upwards of a hundred and eighty dollars um, is is the you know is the tag price.
2: So we're saying that um, for people who need to get a specialist appointment, sometimes this uh, very significant out of pocket cost. We're not talking ten or twenty bucks. Uh, yeah,
0: when when it's something like say if it is the difference between ninety dollars and a hundred and eighty dollars for the. Profile of the person that we're talking about: ninety dollars is a weekly food bill, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let alone transport um, and all of those other things. So, um, you know, the, those sorts of very um, uh, practical decisions are being made. And of course, the par- parody, uh, the parody, the paradox <laughs> of this is, is that the delayed attention to the services they need comes back to bite. Everybody, because when they do eventually reach um, you know critical need, um, the cost is much higher. So I'm guessing, being the Grattan Institute, they've crunched some numbers on this. Well said, uh, Dr. Nick. So <laughs> for a $710 million, which is the costing they've done for their recommended changes, um, they reckon
2: they can uh, we can bank a savings of a billion. Wow! So for a week of job seeker under COVID, <laughs> really, what exactly. by, our, by our expenditure standards is a tiny amount. Yep. you could save a billion bucks uh, oh, on just, later expenses. That's right. And I'll just uh, just to wrap it up. Oh, sorry. Well, I,
3: and the other thing is, I don't think people quite understand sort of the the implications of this. are that these people then end up in the emergency department, yeah. which is overrun, as we know at the moment. They end up wasting or spending, you know, twelve hours waiting to see someone yeah. to give them a small amount of information about something and do the best they can with the situation they have. And they become so sort of critically unwell so much so that they then might need a hospital admission, which is then costing, you know, another couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. So they have their time away from work with it as well. Yep. As well as the, the you know, our emergency departments can't cope as it is. Yeah. Um so I I think it has huge ramifications.
0: Massive, massive. So you know they've got to built some data for a strong argument for these four recommendations that they've come up with. So first one being that state governments should expand outpatient services to reduce wait times and the federal government should fund bulk build specialist services in private clinics, especially in poorer parts of Australia. Second recommendation was to cut the number of referrals to specialists. The federal government should pay specialists for giving GPs
2: over-the-phone advice about patients without actually seeing the patient. Ooh, now, hang on. That's an interesting yeah. recommendation because as a GP myself, it's not uncommon that I would phone a specialist and say, do you need to see this person or whatever, but that's a, that's a person-to-person relationship yeah. where I'm getting, if you like, some free advice. Mm. But the idea that there would be a funded service where we could actually have a, a semi-formal consultation on the telephone phone. Mm. That's that's a fabulous idea. Yeah. I reckon it's a cracker. And then
0: third, uh, to cut pharmaceutical costs, especially for people with chronic conditions, the government should lower the co-payment for people on multiple medications. And finally, the fourth recommendation where we can get this billion-dollar savings is the government should eliminate out-of-pocket payments for diagnostic services such as scans and blood tests and radiotherapy
2: services by funding them directly through a commercial tender. Right. Well, that's a series of very interesting recommendations. I have to say a lot of investigation services are pretty good about saying if you can't afford it, then we'll reduce the fee or bulk bill. So... Uh, a lot of radiology and pathology are pretty good about this. I'm not sure our specialist colleagues, I don't know if Diagnosis, you've got a comment. I'm not sure our specialist colleagues are quite so willing to.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> I think they. I think you've just uh, hit the nail on the head. Where would the uh, obstacle to getting this shift come through, Dr Nick? I think you've just named it.
2: <laughs> um, but, I do, but I do think that's a fascinating idea about uh, funding um, a proper conf- conversation between primary care doctors like myself and specialists, uh, I think that's a really sensible, progressive thought. That might even be one we could put to our next guest on the show, Fiona Patton, because she's good at taking up the mantle of socially progressive concepts, so we might keep that in, that, that well, might keep that in mind. Um, so that's a lovely little segue to say that we will be talking to Fiona fairly soon. She'll be coming up with us right after this.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
2: I'm actually delighted to say that we have the leader of the Reason Party, um, Member of Parliament, Fiona Patton, on the phone. Good morning, Fiona.
1: Good morning. Good morning, everyone.
2: Thank you so much for joining us on the phone on this beautiful Sunday morning. Would you be in the dog park otherwise?
1: Uh, well, I am off to Dalesford to celebrate all things chill out um, at the festival. So, yes, in in the car, uh, on my way to beautiful Dalesford.
2: Well, thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. Um, first up, most people uh, listening to, will know Fiona Patton's name and voice extremely well, but for those who just need a refresher, give me the elevator pitch. Who is Fiona Patton?
1: <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, so I'm Fiona Patton. I'm, the, I'm a Member of Parliament in Victoria, and I represent the Northern Metropolitan Region, which is everything from the CBD up to around the the absolute outskirts of Melbourne. And then I head over to Maribyrnong on my west and um, sort of the Yarra on my... my Yarra Mary Creek on my east. Uh, I'm the chair of the Legal and Social Issues Committee, which has done many, many reports, as many of your listeners will know. Um, And, yeah, I I founded the the Reason Party, um, which... Which grew grew out of our our adolescent self, which was the sex party.
2: And you've been involved in all sorts of socially progressive legislation, you've been involved in censorship and freedom, marriage equality, voluntary mm. assisted dying, safe injecting rooms. I mean it's a, a unbelievable list of really complicated areas. And now just because life wasn't hard enough you decide to tackle decriminalizing drugs. <laughs>
1: Why? <laughs> Well, I don't think, um, I, I don't actually think we have to, to ask the question why. Um, we we know why. We know that what we're doing now does not work. Mm-hmm. We know that our death toll um, from, from from drugs in our community is twice that of our own.
2: Just see if we can get Fiona back on the line. We're talking with Fiona Pat- Patton, um, who is the leader of the Reason Party, who's just put forward a bill to decriminalise currently illicit drugs. It's an area I'm absolutely fascinated in, misdiagnosis. You've worked in hospitals. I'm sure you've seen huge numbers of issues with people uh, taking illicit drugs. Is that something that comes across your path much in hospital medicine?
3: All the time in emergency. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly common, especially with the um, the ice epidemic in some of the suburbs of Melbourne as well. So we, we see probably slightly more of that that sort of destructive side of it with ice use but we certainly get so
2: so as a hospital doctor does it scare you the thought of decriminalizing things like ice
3: i mean decriminalizing ice i i don't know what that would look like and i certainly would find that um quite alarming i think some of the other other illicit drugs might be a little bit more
2: Right well I think we've got Fiona Patton back on the line Fiona we've just been talking to Miss Diagnosis Hospital doctor she's alarmed <laughs> <laughs> Alarmed she's okay. alarmed at the well. thought of decriminalizing things like ice
1: Yeah look I, I do you know, when we've done studies and when we've looked at this and I, and I'm, when I say we I'm talking about you know the the federal health department I'm talking about the Australian the Australian Alcohol and Drug Foundation I'm talking about, you know, significant organisation. There's very few people who have not used drugs because they were illegal. Um, also, nearly 50% of all of us have used illicit drugs at some stage in our life, largely without problems. Now, I caught the tail end of that saying, well, what happens if we decriminalise ICE? Well, what happens right now when an ICE user... Um, is pulled over by the police. If it's their second time, they are arrested. They are charged. They go to court. Sometimes, if they're you know if they have if they're homeless or they have other issues, they will end up in remand, um, and then they will come before the court and it will be on a possession charge, and they'll probably get a criminal record, um, but without without much of a jail sentence. Um, at no point does our health system check into that. Mm-hmm. So. I don't think that works. And so even for those most serious of substances, it's almost where we need the health approach even more um, than than when we might have someone, you know, an occasional MDMA user, an occasional um, psilocybin user. uh, You know, so it's it's actually at the pointy end where where decriminalisation has the best effect. And Portugal found this. Portugal was in the middle of a huge heroin epidemic
2: i want to, um, ask, I want to ask you about portugal in a second yeah. pa- the panel beaters just itching to oh yeah no i was just going to uh,
0: come in uh the back of what fiona's pointing out there i think the other thing that's really crucial to remember when we're talking about um decriminalization is we want to be careful that we're comparing apples and apples so the The current world that we live in, the policy world that we live in with drugs, is going to be very, very different than the post decriminalisation. So, two major things will change. Once it's decriminalised, the cost, one of the drivers towards something like methanise, is it's cheap. Um, and mm. so that can be uh, addressed under regulation, and also the quality of it. It's obviously a very poor quality drug, and with regulation, you can start regulating quality. So there's there's levers that can be placed on demand. There is is that fair to say, Fiona?
1: Well, it is if we were going to go for a fully regulated market. Um, I I well I have you know I have yeah you know, I. I, I agree. Like regulation is the way that we can ins- we can reduce harm even further. But to be honest, what I'm actually the decriminalisation is a much smaller step. So this is about about depenalising use and possession and taking a health approach. So for example, if someone was stopped in the street and found to have a joint, um, rather than them being charged, they would be issued with a an educational treatment notice and and they would need to comply with that.
2: But what's Um, the difference there, Fiona, from what's happening now? Because, uh, I mean, how often do the police stop someone who's a 20-year-old with a joint in their pocket and do anything at all?
1: uh, Quite a lot. In fact, 26,000 people were arrested for the use and possession of drugs in Victoria last year. About Uh 70 to a day. And the and. About a third of those were cannabis. Okay. So we we do have diversion programs. We do have cannabis cautioning programs, but they're limited. And they're used, they're not necessarily used equally. So, look, if you are a middle class um, white university student, you might just get a caution. You might get a slap on the hand. Um, that's not to say the same for our indigenous or our cold community. Uh-huh. Uh, they, there will be a different approach. If you are experiencing homelessness, or if you are experiencing mental health issues, uh, you may well, you will be treated different. You know, the evidence shows us that you will be treated differently. So, yeah, we do have, we do have diversion. So, in mm. some ways, this is not radical. This is actually just extending that diversion and that cautioning screen to
2: everyone. And I rudely cut you off when you were starting to talk about Portugal, but I'm aware that Portugal decriminalised, I think, all illicit drugs 20 years ago now. Um, yes. So we do have data from elsewhere to say, does this lead to sort of rampant drug use and people collapsing in the streets left, right and centre? Um, I'm sure you're familiar with what the Portugal experience is. What have they been able to learn from yeah. this? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I've, I've had the great opportunity of going there a couple of times. Um, a few times and um, and and seeing it firsthand, but what their evidence shows is that the harms to drug use, so things like um, hepatitis C, HIV, uh, uh, those those um, the bloodborne viruses, has has significantly declined. But death, mm-hmm. <laughs> death linked to drug use, has declined ex- extra. Ex- extraordinarily, also the age, and then on the other side, the age that people first start using drugs in Portugal has increased. And we know that the age that you start using substances, whether it's alcohol, whether it's tobacco, whether it's illicit substance, um, will will impact on the negative effects that it has on, on, on you. So the younger you start the more likely you are to have problems with that drug use.
2: I think that's such so a great point. That, and as a yeah. health professional, one of the things that scares me is when people start using psychoactive substances younger, when yes. their brains are more vulnerable. Yes. And what I understood, yeah. at least some of the Portuguese data suggests, that uh, rather than suddenly leading to people using stuff left, right, and centre, um, there's no no overall increase oh. in drug use. It's been a thing, no. a decrease, and as you say, starting later. That's
1: right. In fact, there. There, there has been no substantial increase in Portugal, and then Portugal Portugal's drug use is significantly lower than than countries surrounding it. And certainly, if you compare it to somewhere like the UK that has, you know, that has drug laws similar to ours, um, there, I think it's about a third. So uh, people in the UK use drugs three times more regularly. Than people in Portugal, where it's decriminalised, where the focus is on treatment, you know. And when you think of that kind of forbidden apple, you think of that, you know, you know, rebel, rebellious, uh, rebelliousness of it. Um, when, when the government is saying to you, you're not rebellious. Just, you just might have a health problem. <laughs> yes. It's actually not not all that attractive to teenagers. And, and it's, it's enabled them to have much more honest conversations. And I know, Nick, you would have found that quite often that illicit nature also provides a barrier for a patient to talk honestly to a doctor about what they're experiencing. Yeah. And that's why the Royal College of GPs, it's why the Royal College of Physicians, it's why the AMA, have come on board saying we need to
2: take a health approach, not a criminal approach.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Panel Yeah, Fiona, um, one of the reasons we're lucky to have you with us today is because of the new initiative before us, um, the establishment of a select... Panel, an expert panel that's going yeah. to look at, at to, that's going to look at what's possible. Can I play the role of you know panel, expert panel skeptic and say what 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 can we expect from an expert panel? I mean, my sense is that uh, the Attorney General has said that um, whatever the panel does, it has to work within the current legislative framework and it needs to yeah. capture the current police drug strategy, the 2020-2025 drug strategy. Yeah. What what are reasonable yeah. expectations to come out of a panel with that kind of um, boundary set?
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's some pretty tight, pretty tight boundaries on, on that panel. I think, firstly, and uh, I, this is weird, and I, feel, I feel strange saying this sentence, I'd encourage people to actually go and have a look at the police's drug strategy 2020 to 2025. It's actually pretty good. Um, it, it, there's, drug use should be a... Um, a should have a health focus, not a criminal one. So they, the, the police are out in front on this one. They know, you know, and I don't think it's no secret that um, Deputy Commissioner Rick Nugent traveled with with me and another r- range of MPs um, when we went to Portugal, when we went to Switzerland, when we went to Oregon, um, when we went to uh, Colorado and, and Canada and saw firsthand how different approaches to drug laws can can in, have an impact on police. So the police are in favour of this. Um, they know that the diversion scheme doesn't necessarily work um, as well as it should work and doesn't help probably help the people that need the help the most. So even under those narrow confines, I would hope that that, that expert group looks at... Um, a, an equitable diversion scheme where everyone basically gets gets a gets a health response to their drug use, not a criminal one, uh, and that would be in line with the police strategy. And that can be done under the existing legislation. I think the existing legislation should change. However, in the first instance, if we were going to conduct a trial, we could do that under the existing existing
2: legislation. Pian, I just want to ask you, you've mentioned about Portugal. I mean, Portugal have been doing this for 20 years. They had a two-year implementation mm. phase to get things working and to get services in order. I'm aware that in Oregon, where it's only just been passed, I think it was last year they passed the legislation, but there's some anxiety that they don't have the services, they don't have the referral pathways and so on. And I could see this as being a major concern if uh, in Australia. If we suddenly said, "All right, we're going to mm. divert everyone mm. to help," well, where is the help? We're struggling at the <laughs> moment with any form of mental health and yeah. referral services and so on. Yeah. How are we suddenly going to deal with a, another tsunami of people for, from drug yeah. diversion.
1: I, it, it's a really, it's a really important point, and it's a really, it, it's a really crucial part of this. And and I think there's there's two areas. Well, you know, for the vast majority of people who use illicit drugs, there are, they have no health consequences. They get on with their lives, they might age out of it, um, but largely it does not impact on their their lives, on their families, on their work, on their education, or even to a large extent, on their
2: health. I think that's a really important point, that we talk about illicit drugs as if it's a scourge that's always destroying people's lives yeah, and home. careers. But you're absolutely right, and anyone who works in the health field would know that and anyone who knows anyone <laughs> at all that's yeah. been using drugs and it, and it hasn't destroyed their lives. So yeah. that point's really important. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> so, so
1: I, like Portugal... We need to establish a triage, and which is why I do think a trial is actually very important, so that we can we can work out this triage. And we know that there's some really great online programs already in place around drug education that are not that are not being fully utilised. And I'd I'd look at the um, the Alcohol and Drug Foundation, some of the programs that they already have, which could be scaled up. Um, but The other, and I think it's a slightly more curious area, and I'm hoping the expert group will look at this, is how many people who end up going to court um, on a drug charge who are in that category, who don't have a real problem with it, but they've got a good lawyer, they're in court, the lawyer says this person will undertake treatment, this person will do drug counselling, and that gets them off with a no conviction recorded and an order. So I suspect we do also have people in our system that don't necessarily need to be in our system.
2: Yeah, Um, absolutely. And that will open
1: it up. But on on top of that, we need to, there is no doubt that our alcohol and other drug sector is in desperate need of
2: resourcing. (laughs) And just on the politics of this, I imagine that um, there's not a great deal of appetite on any political front for something that seems to be soft on drugs. And I noted in your interview with Neil Mitchell, um, he used the phrase de facto criminalisation five times. (laughs) It it, it, it was if the whole concept of even considering a health approach to drugs was just anathema. Um, How do we handle this from a political perspective? And actually get yeah. politicians to take this seriously. Yeah.
1: Look, um, it, it, I, I think Neil Mitchell was actually trying to cause trouble as well. Oh, really? Um, because the government was saying this is not decriminalisation, this is not. And he was enjoying calling it just that. Uh, but yes, we do need people to, to, to recognise that we need to be smarter on drugs, not tougher on drugs. And we look. We've done that. And this, this, while well, you know, it's not the stride of drug law reform that I would like. It's it's a small step, and and everything starts with baby steps. So this is a small step, and I hope that we will um, bring people, bring people, and and politicians along with it. I mean, I was just stupidly reading Peter Credlin this morning. Um, <laughs> and Just by I to I know, I I, I apologise. I shouldn't even admit to doing that on, on air. I, you know, I am embarrassed. Um, but, you know, it, she was advised to the Prime Minister, you know, to Tony Abbott when he said, well, of course we're losing the, the war on drugs and we will lose it, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. Well, Yes, it does. It <laughs> <is> something different.
2: <laughs> that's a. That's a, That's a perfect way because we have to wrap up on a perfect way yes of course it does of course we should try i love your concept of the baby steps fiona Patton. Yeah. um thank you for taking those baby steps and i want you to address the next one please because we need you to have more work to do you mentioned that we kill far more people with these drugs than die in the road toll actually a huge number of those people who die from drugs are not from illicit drugs they're me the prescription drugs so can you t- <laughs> can you tackle that one next too, please I- <laughs>
1: It's interesting. I just was talking. I just got a briefing on the prescription monitoring scheme. So off air, I would love to have a chat to you about that.
2: Yes, SafeScript, um, the thing that was going to save our souls. And anyway, we'll come back to SafeScript another time. Fiona Patton, (laughs) it's been (laughs) an absolute delight to have a safe trip up to Daleswood. Have a very relaxing weekend and congratulations on your fantastic work.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're going
2: to talk defibrillators and in a second we'll be talking with Sam Boyvin, but a misdiagnosis just before we chat with Sam. I just want you to tell me, um, because there's that lovely sort of history of defibrillators in this country and a connection to one Mr. Kerry Packer.
3: That, that's absolutely right, Dr. Nick. I mean, we should probably start with what a defibrillator well, that's not a bad
2: idea, is, is it? I'm sort of chatting away as if everyone knows what a defib is, but yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> so uh, essentially, it's a device that sends some electricity into your heart, and the aim of it is to... Um, revert your rhythm of your heart back to a normal rhythm. So unlike those sort of scenes in the movies when people are flatlining and you can add electricity to it, it doesn't really work like that. It's when your heart's doing a bit of a sort of funny beating pattern.
2: Hence the fibrillation exactly. and then defibrillating.
3: Yeah, exactly. So that, that I mean, that's the sort of basics of what it is. But um, if we go back to the dog park shout-out, <laughs> most of medical um, inventions started with experimentation on dogs, unfortunately. Oh, and,
1: <laughs> they, me and, sad. and they,
3: they made these poor little dogs' hearts fibrillate. They chucked some electricity into it and this was in the They gave 1890s. the mice the
0: day off, did they? They, they gave that? the
3: mice the day off, <laughs> yeah. The um yeah, it's a bigger hearts, so easier to test in dogs, um, and they could shock them back into a pattern. The dogs were very happy afterwards, and let's just say that they all survived and it was all fine. no animals were harmed. And that was in the um, that was in the sort of late eighteen nineties, and then of course with you know technology changes and things, we've been able to get these defibrillators into a, a more usable size. But it, absolutely, as you you said, we didn't used to have them in every ambulance. Um, However, the media mogul Kerry Packer, he suffered unfortunately a cardiac arrest out of hospital and the ambulance that attended him did have a defibrillator installed in it. And rumour has it whilst he was recovering in hospital, um, he called the New South Wales Premier and said that he would like to go halves (laughs) on the cost of funding a defibrillator in every ambulance in New South Wales.
2: And yeah, i just give the politicians, oh, I'll go halves with you. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think it's sort of,
3: you know, 50-50, PayPal, it's, it's, it's easy.
2: <laughs> and that's what happened essentially, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's, that's what happened and that's, that's where sort of the start of having these defibrillators. Okay,
2: so I want to get on and so. talk to Sam in a second, mm-hmm. but I just need you to tell me, is there any evidence that defibrillators make any difference to anyone, anywhere?
3: I think that's a very, very good question for Sam. I mean, yes, they do. They do. They absolutely do make a big difference. But the question to me, I don't think that is because there's a difference between how a trained medical professional uses a defibrillator versus what we call an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a Uh bystander. So there's paramedics using them. Makes a huge difference. And then there's bystanders using them. And that's where I think this is a very interesting program.
2: Right. Okay. Well, let's segue straight in. Tell us who we're talking to.
3: So we have the lovely Sam Boyvan on the phone. So Sam is the Community Development and Engagement Officer for St John's Ambulance Victoria, and his role currently is focused on the program Defib In Your Street, which is a new community program that aims to make the suburb of Reservoir, in particular, the safest place in Australia to have a sudden out-of-hospital cardiac arrest.
2: Wow, okay. Well, welcome, Sam.
3: G'day, Nick and Isabella. Thanks for having me.
2: How lovely to talk to you. So um, why Reservoir?
4: Well, Reservoir. Uh, what we wanted to do is we we were uh, St John Ambulance wanted to pick a place to uh, trial having um, uh, defibrillators available to the public uh, and um, having people receiving training for defibrillation and CPR techniques. Uh, and so we looked around. We did some research. Uh, Reservoir. It's a uh, fantastic suburb. Uh, it's got a really rich history from the you know the original Ruarangi people uh, who were there for thousands of years. Also a history of migration you know, throughout the 20th century, which has led to a very diverse um, you know, modern-day reservoir. So it's a fantastic suburb. The reason why we chose it is because our, our research um, did bring back a few quite alarming numbers. Uh, it's a top five suburb in Victoria, if you go by postcode, a top five suburb in Victoria for the number of sudden cardiac arrests. So there's quite a lot of cardiac arrests happening in Reservoir. Uh, And until this program started installing defibrillators just very recently, Reservoir didn't actually have any defibrillators that were available 24-7 to the community. Um, And uh, there was also no record of anyone having been defibrillated by a bystander in reservoir in the last, uh, for several
2: years.
3: So Sam, let's go back to the question that Dr Nick was asking earlier. The difference between a bystander defibrillation versus a medical professional defibrillation. Is it different survival rates?
4: Yeah, so the really the key to that is how quick you can get a defibrillator on someone who's mm-hmm. had a cardiac arrest. So basically um a cardiac arrest is a really dangerous situation. It means that your that your heart has stopped uh, being able to pump blood through your body into your brain. Mm-hmm. So it's a yeah it's a very it's a immediate emergency. Uh, And um, when someone has a cardiac arrest, uh, for every um, for every minute that uh, defibrillation is not received, or CPR, I should say, that CPR and defibrillation is not received, the chances of survival decreases by 10%. Uh, So when you think about, um, you know, recently with uh, with with the COVID, um, uh, with what's happened with COVID, the ambulances have been a lot busier, Mm. uh, and the ambulance response rate is longer uh, has been longer recently in the last couple of years so getting that defibrillator to someone is vitally important and it's going to increase the chances of survival
3: mm. and um so who who is this training for you know you mentioned having mm. them in the street where do you physically put them are they you know are they, are they on the sidewalk are they in people's homes where are these defibrillators and who's doing this training
4: yeah, that's right. Well, so deeper than your street, we're launching uh, very shortly in the, in the next few weeks uh, in Reservoir. And as I said, you know, Reservoir is the target area that we're trialling this. Uh, and basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to get um, a defibrillator every 400 metres in Reservoir. Uh, one of the key things to, 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 to acknowledge is that 80% of cardiac arrests happen in the home. So they're happening in people's homes. And again, with COVID, that's increased because people were at their homes a lot more. Uh, that means, what that means is that we need defibrillators near people's homes. So uh, the magic number for a defibrillator every 400 metres in a reservoir is going to be we, we're looking to install at least 28 defibrillators. We've already installed a few, and we, we are asking people to put them in their front yards. Uh, and we've had um, some really strong community support so far. So in Reservoir over the next year, you're going to see defibrillators pop up uh, in public spaces, maybe some small businesses as well. Um, at the council venues, the uh, Durban City Council has been incredibly supportive. But also, yeah, in people's front yards, out on their verandas, as long as we've got a bit of shade from the sun and, for, and, and, and shelter from the rain, you can put a defibrillator in there.
3: Now, our survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are somewhere between mm. 6 to 10%, if what mm. I read was correct. What is the, it, will these defibrillators increase that survival rate? Is that the aim?
4: Yeah, so research will show that um, defibrillation is incredibly effective, uh, and uh, when you say the survival is between six and ten percent, that's mm-hmm. at that lower end because of COVID. So we're talking about a survival rate of about six percent at the moment, which mm-hmm. is very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone can get a defibrillator uh, on them in the first, you know, few minutes of uh, after that cardiac arrest, the chances of survival can increase to up to over fifty percent. Mm-hmm. And you know, depending on the on the circumstances of the cardiac arrest, even higher than fifty percent. So more defibrillators and people knowing where these defibrillators are will mean more survival rates.
3: And is this program based on um, any other particular research? You know, have they done this elsewhere and shown that they have been able to improve survival rates?
4: Yeah, there's a couple of places in the world that have uh, you know, done a bit of uh, similar programs to this. One is Seattle in the US and the state of Washington in the US where they have um, publicly accessible defibrillators and also they really f- have an emphasis on training people up with CPR and defibrillation techniques. Mm. And their survival rate has gone up since they've done that. The other um, area is the Netherlands. So the Netherlands, the Dutch Heart Foundation, uh, they ran a program and they have six-minute zones uh, throughout the country where no, no one in the Netherlands is, uh, is away from six minutes away from a defibrillator. And also, you know, they have high training rates and they, they emphasise training. And the Netherlands is actually has the lower, the highest survival rates for defibrillation in the world. What I think I think well, the defibrillation rate is over is over 50%. So what that means is that uh, people who receive a cardiac arrest, about 50% of them uh, receive defibrillation, uh-huh. which is um, you know, uh, when you're looking at Victoria. We're actually about 1% at the moment, about 1% of people receive by defibrillation. Mm. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm.
3: And, of course, we know that the, um, the training is incredibly important. You can't just physically put these things on someone's veranda and then expect them to make a difference on their own. You know, there's mm. a huge difference between effective chest compressions and proper CPR and what most people receive out of hospital. So how is this going to be addressed? What training programs and who's this training for?
4: Yes. So a big part of defib in your street is going to be uh, that we are offering free training sessions to uh, residents of Reservoir, so anyone who lives in Reservoir, but then also people who work in Reservoir or who regularly visit because of family or maybe they play sports in Reservoir or or they study in Reservoir, so anyone with a strong connection to the area. And we're running uh, face-to-face CPR and defibrillation training. Now, I should say this is accredited training. So mm-hmm. this is nationally recognised. You get a qualification, you can stick it on your uh, on your resume, uh, and we're hoping to train 3,000 people over the next um over the next year. So I'd encourage everyone to jump on the website and and look at that. Uh, and so what that will mean is that um we'll have a lot more um we'll have a lot more trained up people in reservoir, and we're also hoping to reach most of the suburb uh, with information on Defib in your street. And you know, running workshops. We'll be going to malls. We're also going to visit every single primary school and secondary school in Reservoir, and talk to the talk to the students about uh, CPR how important it is, and show them how to use a defibrillator.
2: Sam, it sounds a fantastic initiative. Um, how much does a defib cost?
4: Yeah, so the defibs um, they they. Retail for about two and a half grand, but um, if, a, if a community group, uh, especially a, a reservoir community group, wants to fund uh, for a defibrillator, as long as the community group's willing to place the defibrillator somewhere where it's accessible 24-7, which basically means on an outdoor area, um, then we are willing to meet that cost 50-50, so it'll bring the cost right down to yeah, about $1,200, $1,300. dollars
1: hmm
3: and what about mm. maintenance? Because you know, when I'm working in the hospital, there's every day it seems like someone's coming around and checking these machines, making sure that they're working properly, just in case you know something happens, which it does often in the hospital. Do these machines need regular maintenance? Because I, I just have this picture of you sticking these things in the street, and then it actually comes down to needing them. But someone forgot to turn the batteries off, or you know, flick the on switch or water, You know, do they need much maintenance?
4: Yeah, the, the, the you know, defibrillator technology it does keep getting better and better. Mm. So there's a lot of um, you know uh, a lot of advances in defibrillator technology. Mm. One thing we haven't talked about is that uh, a defibrillator will also the new ones, the G5 units, is the, that's the, the ones that we're using for this project. When you open them up in an emergency, they actually talk to you, mm. so they talk you right through the whole process of what you need to do. Uh, which takes, which makes it you know, a lot more clear and a very clear voice So, you know, when you're in that stressful situation. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as um, maintenance goes, so they do have a battery, but the battery lasts several years. I think it's once it every four years it needs to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the pads, um, which are the pads that stick to the chest during defibrillation, they need to be replaced if they get used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they need to be replaced every couple of years as well. So the the those are things that you need to you do need to um, have you know you, you need to know about them. But they are quite there is quite a long life with those things. That's sort of four years, yeah. Yeah, and for the first year of this program, so this program is going to be running until the thirty first of March, twenty twenty three in Reservoir, mm. Uh And if any of that maintenance needs to be go- done during that first year, then St John Ambulance is going to meet that cost. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. And what kind yeah. of feedback have you had from the community?
4: Oh, it's been overwhelmingly supportive. So, as I said, uh, Darwin City Council has been really great. Uh, we've had um, uh, some interest from uh, from some companies. Uh, La Trobe University has been really good. They've come uh, uh, with a, with a enough funding for four defibrillators, which we're installing uh, at the moment. Uh, and also National Australia Bank as well. Uh, in community, we're we're actually launching on the 31st of March officially. Mm-hmm. But um, so far, the community has been incredibly supportive, uh, and we've been really com- you know, emphasising the, the need for this, and this, this is something. These are uh, these rates of um, of defibrillation; they really need to be higher. This is a problem that we can do something about, mm-hmm. uh, and we just need to get the to get people to realize that it's there's a, there's a there's a way that we can um start to treat this a lot better.
3: And j- just one more question before you wrap up. So, yeah. I mean as a you know as a medical professional when this stuff happens, it's incredibly stressful and mm. often there's quite a significant debrief period after for people that perform CPR and use a defibrillator. What is going to happen doing this in the community for a bystander who's not medically trained experiencing mm. what can be quite mm. a traumatic um, situation, especially when things don't go well, and we know statistically that often they don't. Is is this program set up to support these you know members of the local community who are, are stepping in to do this?
4: Yeah, well, at St John, we know we know how stressful it is, uh, and you know our workers, especially our ambulance drivers and our and our medics, um, you know experience that every day. And we strongly encourage anyone who's been through that. Uh, you know, horrible situation, regardless of outcome, it's very stressful, you know, to, to talk to people about it, um, and, you know, there's a, there's a, when someone's in that situation at St. John, we encourage people to, you know, to, to do something rather than not to do it, uh, but, you know, we realise that for, for everyone it's different, and for every situation, every cardiac arrest situation is very different. Uh, so we do strongly encourage people to to reach out to other people if they've been in that situation. Um, if you're in Reservoir and you're living in Reservoir, over the next few months you'll probably get a um, something in the post, and uh, it's going to be a fridge magnet. And what we're going to do is when we install these defibrillators in people's in people's front yards and and uh, other areas in Reservoir. We're going to, within that 400 metres of that defibrillator, we're going to tell every resident where that defibrillator is. So you're going to get a fridge magnet. And the idea is that, you know, in the evening you're going for a walk, you may be, you know, off walking your dog. Just have a walk past that defibrillator and get a mental image of where it is because you never know when, it's going to, when you're going to need it. And the other thing we encourage people to do is sign up for this training. It's going to be at um, Keon Park Children's Hub, which is in Reservoir, I'm running on Wednesday and Thursday evenings, and it's free. It's so free and
2: available. So if people listening to this want to find out more, want to get involved, uh, is there a website? Where do they go?
4: Yeah, that's right. So it's um, just uh, DFIB in your street. You can Google DFIB in your street. DFIB is D-I-E-F-I-B. Uh, or you can go straight to our website, which is DefibInYourStreet.org.au.
2: Sam, thank you very much for bringing us up to date with that. Fascinating topic. Very best of luck to you. And uh, thank you for joining us on the 3RRR.
4: Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on 3 R, And big thanks to the Reservoir community so far. I'm looking forward to working with you. Um, you'll see me around at different events and uh, at, the, at the mall, uh, spreading the word about defibrillation and CPR. And I hope to see a lot of you at the, at the free training.
2: Thanks, Sam. That was Sam Boyvin from St. John Ambulance. Um, and uh, the one thing I want to say, and I think it's such a crucial area, and you mentioned this misdiagnosis, but my wife said this to me. Why doesn't anyone say over and over again, it's worth doing this CPR and the DfiB but often it's not going to work? Mm. So make people aware, do it. Give it your best crack. It's better than not doing it. But to make people aware that there's a very good chance it won't work and, and you can't go into this sort of thinking mm-hmm. that sort of TV thing you're saying that every, every time you whack one of these things yeah. on someone's chest, yeah. they're going to survive. And yeah. uh, and it's such an it's important really point. it's really
3: distressing to do as yeah. well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's nearly time to wrap up here on Radiotherapy. Just time to say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests, Fiona Patton from The Reason Party and Sam Boyvan from St John ambulance and, the, and our multi-talented Dr. Nick team misdiagnosis and penalty, uh, panel beater. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Hi,
0: this is panel beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via
4: Radiotherapy's Facebook page.